You may be seated. And if there are any kids in here this morning, well, it is the fifth Sunday, and so uh, you guys are staying in here with the big kids, because uh, that's what we are. We're big kids. Uh, at least that's what I call myself, but I'm only five foot four, so uh, I am a big kid. Uh, again, I want to welcome you this morning to Trinity. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, and if you are a regular, uh, then you know the deal. Uh, but I am not the um, lead pastor here. Pastor Mike, he has gone on, um, I guess what I would call um, a missions trip uh, to preach uh, elsewhere up north. And so he is going back to a church that he was previously at um, with uh, Alyssa and, and um, Andrew to uh, preach. And they're going to lead worship there this morning. Uh, and so I'm your substitute. And so uh, if uh, I'm not good enough or if my sermon is lacking, uh, just send him an email and let him know. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. Um, and also, before I dive into my sermon, I, I do want to let you know, man, I'm exhausted, and my wife's, my wife is exhausted. Um, we purchased our first home um, this past week. Uh, we bought our first home uh, this past week, and we've been moving in all week long. And uh, we sat down last night after we kind of got everything toward the house, and we are like, we never want to move again. And we're only 22, we're only 22 years old, so uh, yeah, um, so we're, we plan to be at this house for, for a while uh, and have kids and raise kids in it and uh, may the Lord bless us in that house and, and our future family there. Uh, but yeah, so we're exhausted, but I'm here nevertheless, and I prayed for the Lord's strength and energy and motivation this morning to carry me through, and I pray that, uh, I hope that you've prayed for me as well. Uh, but uh, before I dive in this morning, um, we are in the book of Revelation still, Revelation chapter 3, if you want to turn there, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning, okay? And as you're turning there, uh, I have uh, an illustration for you this morning. It's very short. A discouraged pastor told his congregation one Sunday morning that the church was dead, and that next week he was going to preach their funeral service. When people arrived the next week, the curtains were drawn, solemn music was playing, and a casket had been placed at the front of the church. The pastor preached his message and then said, Some of you may not agree with me that this church is indeed dead. To convince you, I'm going to ask you to view its remains. Each one came to the casket to see the dead body. But when they looked in, they found a mirror had been placed there instead. Each one gazed into the mirror to find a reflection of themselves. They were the ones that were dead. But how? Because they were still breathing. How is this illustration and why is this illustration important for us this morning or relevant to us? Well, this morning we are more than halfway through our study of the seven churches that John addresses in the first three chapters of Revelation. So far, we've looked at the church in Ephesus who had forsaken their first love, the church of Smyrna who experienced persecution and was encouraged not to fear. We've looked at the church of Pergamum where some appeared to be seduced and were displaying a morally compromised lifestyle. 
Then lastly, we looked at the church of Thyatira, uh, Thyatira, where some believers were tolerant of sin and false teaching. And so this brings us here to our passage today, where we'll be looking at a church who is on a life support system. Just barely clinging to life, they are. In fact, many parts of its body are already dead. They look alive outwardly, but inwardly, they're deceased. No longer breathing, lifeless. They've gone cold. Follow along with me as we dive into God's word together this morning. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has, has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to, their, to the churches. Let us pray once more this morning. Lord, we ask that you would come here this morning and speak to us from your word. We ask that you make it relevant to our personal situations here today. Help us not to look at others, but to focus on our own needs this morning. And we pray that if we are in need of reviving this morning, if we are lifeless and dead, and if we have gone cold on any front, that you would breathe your breath on us, that you would wake us up, Holy Spirit, that you would light a fire in our soul like we once had, and that we would wake up. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, with all of these letters that we have looked at over the past couple of weeks from uh, Mike's sermons, uh, we've been looking at four areas, okay? Uh, the first area is the church. And then the second area is the picture of Christ that is uh, portrayed here. Then third is the commendations or condemnations. Then lastly, we've been looking at the promises to those who overcome and so first this morning, let us look at the church of Sardis. And you may not know this, but I want to give you some context of Sardis and why it is important, why, it is, why it's even included in a letter that John addresses here. So you must know 500 years before John wrote this letter to Sardis, Sardis was one of the richest and most powerful cities ever in the world at that time. A man named... Uh, Croesus lived there and was considered the wealthiest man in the world. The Greeks called him Midas. You see, Sardis was virtually unassailable by enemies. The city was built on a mountain spur about 1,500 uh, 1500 feet above the valley floor. 
you could only approach the south side, you could only approach Sardis from the south side on a very steep and difficult path. The other sides were cliffs, but even despite its natural defenses, it was defeated twice in its history, once by the Persians and again by the Greeks. It's interesting that both times that Sardis fell, it was from the front. It was not from the front, but it was from the back cliffs. The people of Sardis were so confident that they didn't feel it necessary to guard the back cliffs. But it was where they were confident and self-assured that they had failed. You see, the Persians under Cyrus attacked the city for a year without success until one night a Persian soldier on the backside saw a soldier from Sardis drop his helmet over the cliff. Thinking no one was watching, the soldier made his way down the cliff to retrieve the helmet. The Persian traced his path, and then that night, he took a band of soldiers and entered the city uncontested by its people. The city was sleeping, unaware. They were confident and self-assured. You see, what an illustration of how we as Christians often fall, right? We can be so confident that we have our life together, that we have all our cards in order, right? And it's where we are strongest and the most confident that we often fall, where sin creeps in the back door, where compromise and false teaching, a false ideology, a false worldview will creep in the back door. But that's a whole other sermon. And secondly, we want to look at the picture of Christ, which is actually where we'll dive into Scripture this morning. So look at the first verse. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We read, just right, we read right over that, and if you're reading this for the tenth or hundredth time, you might have just read right over it again. But see, as with all the letters that Christ sends to his seven churches, this one begins with a description of the author. In fact, as you may recall from Mike's previous sermons the past couple of weeks, the description Jesus Christ gives himself in the opening line of a given letter gives a critical message to the particular church that is being addressed. So there is a need to understand Jesus' Jesus' description of himself here in our text. Here, Christ describes himself as what? He describes himself as possessing or holding two things. What are the two things? Well, here it says, the first is seven spirits of God. What is this? Why is this important to us? Well, this phrase only appears in the book of Revelation four times throughout the entirety of the book. The first time we see it is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Then the second time we see it is in our text today, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Then the third time we see it is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Then the last time we see it is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. You see, this phrase is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But what about the number seven? Why, what is, why is that important? What is, what is that? What does that even mean to us? Maybe because the number seven is, so to say, the perfect number. Maybe it is related to the fact that the descriptions are in the context of seven letters to the seven churches. 
You see, it would be easy for our feeble and uh, oftentimes imaginative human minds to think that the Christian church spread and grew after Pentecost. And as it spread, that the Holy Spirit would, so to say, be spread thinner and thinner as more churches grew and more churches uh, were planted. However, at Pentecost, uh, all the action is in one place, right? So to say, for lack of better words. All the action is in one place. The Holy Spirit's there. And miraculous things happened. But as the churches spread, so too did the Holy Spirit with it. And this is not right thinking, right? To think that as churches spread throughout that time that the Holy Spirit would be spread thinner and thinner. Because we know today that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, right? The Godhead. And if the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead and the Trinity, then the Holy Spirit is also omnipresent, right? Everywhere at one time, not lacking. But maybe this is what John is trying to emphasize here with the description of the seven spirits of God. That the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is present in each of the seven churches in his fullness. And so all his power is available for their use. The second thing that we see are the seven stars. This symbol is interpreted for us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, where we are told that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. The word angel means messenger, and there are differences of opinion about whether this refers to a heavenly being, an earthly being, or, or an earthly messenger, or even perhaps the essential spirit of the churches. No matter the true meaning, Christ is saying that the message comes from him as he has their messenger in his hands. Then the third thing we want to look at this morning are the commendations or the condemnations. And as for the church of Sardis, there's no positives here this morning. It's all negative. The letter to Sardis is unique in the fact that nothing at all Christ commends them for. There are no positives here. Read what it says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deed complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. How do we know our body that was once full of life is dying? Well, organs begin to stop, organs cease to function, right? They begin to shut down. The kidneys, the lungs, the heart, they stop. Over time, they start decaying. One thing after another just begins to die. Dying churches are the same. Praying stops. Giving stops. God's word is no longer relevant. There's no sharing of the gospel. Services is lifeless. It's irrelevant. And people just come because they have nothing else better to do. There's no football this Sunday. My kids don't have baseball Sunday, if you play baseball on Sunday, or whatever sport. 
So I guess we'll go to church then. Churches like that offer nothing to a lost world. And people like that offer nothing to a lost world. They are dying and decaying. No life. In relation to this theme and this topic of of dying and, and decaying and a church being dead, an artist was once asked to put on a canvas what he considered to be the picture best symbolizing a decaying and dying church. After several months, he returned and reported that he had finished the task. The hour finally arrived when the painting was to be unveiled, and several people standing around the easel had already given their description of what they thought the church would look like. Some had said it would be a rundown building in great need of repair and paint. Weeds would be growing in the churchyard and there would be some broken window panes. Everyone in the group seemed to have a similar picture in mind. However, when the cloth was removed, a silence fell over the group. Everyone was stunned before their eyes because absolutely, because before their eyes an absolutely beautiful church was painted. The grounds were, kept, were, were well kept and the exterior of the building was in excellent condition. After a few minutes, one person stopped, or one person stepped forward and said to the artist, I thought we asked you to paint a dying church. The artist smiled and he invited everyone to step closer to the painting. He pointed through the windows to the empty pews and to the offering plate on the table. There was nothing in the plate but cobwebs. The prayer benches looked brand new. The hymns and the Bibles had no creases in them. You see, folks, the church that has cobwebs in its offering plate, the church that is dying and decaying. Without the giver, there is no giving. Without the giving, ministries cannot be conducted by the church. Without the ministries being conducted, the mission of the church cannot be carried out. And this is not a tithing sermon. And more important than that, the church whose prayer benches are not worn out is a dying and decaying church. The church whose hymnals and Bibles still have that fresh book smell, we know that smell, is a dying and decaying church. If the mission of the church is not carried out, the church is purposeless and dead. And whether Trinity Wesleyan Church is dead or not will be determined by the spiritual health of each and every single one of you. You see, it's not dependent upon the health of its leadership or pastor any more than it is dependent upon your personal health individually. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you more alive or more dead spiritually? How are you leading your families? How are you raising your kids? When was the last time you spent over five minutes in prayer with the Lord? You see, Sardis had a great reputation as a church. Had a great reputation. They had a great past. They had a fantastic name, and if they were church, and if, if we were church shopping in that day, we'd have no doubt ended up at Sardis. 
They were the ones. We're not told why they had a good name or how they got it. It may have been a result of their lovely building or their vast numbers, their comprehensive programs, their inspiring worship. We're not told explicitly in Scripture so that we can, so we can assume that it's not of utter importance to know. What does matter, though, is, that, is what Christ said to Sardis, and he is saying to us this morning, that reputation means nothing. It doesn't matter what happened in the past, and it doesn't matter what other people think about your congregation. What matters is that what Christ thinks about us and about you individually. They had a name, all right, but they were, were dead. What is your reputation? Are you known as a Christian in your workplace? Many of you in this morning have a secular workspace. Are you known as a Christian? Do people know you as a follower of Christ? The outside, the outside world may see you as a good person, but are you righteous in God's eyes is the question that you should be asking yourself this morning. Because outwardly, you can appear, you can appear righteous, but inwardly, you can be so rotten and so vile and so wicked that only God knows about. Because people like to say, God knows the heart, right? Well, watch what you say, because he knows the heart. He knows the heart. So check your heart this morning. Be careful, because although you have a name, you may be still dead in, God, in God's eyes. Although you may bear the name Christian, it doesn't stop us from being nominal Christians. Nominal Christians are people whose faith does not go beyond being identified with a church, denomination, or people group. They are Christians in name only. Christ has no bearing in their lives. Nominal Christians may attend church and Christian functions, and they self-identify as Christians, but it's only just a label. The gospel, the Great Commission, means nothing to them. They just wear it as a label. I pray that none of you in here this morning are nominal Christians. Name only Christians. They view religion primarily as a social construct and they do not allow it to require much of them in terms of morality or responsibility. The church and starters wore a Christian label. They were nominal Christians for the most part. But Jesus saw the truth behind the label. You see, we can put on a front. But behind closed doors, Christ knows who we are. He knows how devoted we are. We can tell people in their face, oh yeah, Sat in the Lord, sat in the prayer with the Lord this morning for about 30 minutes. But we know we didn't even give him two. So why was Sardis dead then? Notice that we can't find any reference to Sardis having problems with persecution or false teaching. And that cannot be said for some of the other churches that John addresses. You see, Sardis was not aggressive in its witness to the city. I often think maybe there was no persecution 
because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. This church in Sardis was a perfect model of what I would call inoffensive Christianity. You say, what do you, what do you mean, inoffensive Christianity? Christianity is not supposed to be offensive. Yes, it is. The gospel offends. The gospel is offensive to those who are lost and perishing. The city saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. You see, Satan didn't need to send any attacks on the church of false teaching of persecution to lead them astray. Why? Because they weren't a threat. They weren't living out the Great Commission anyway. They weren't doing the basic things of faith and following Christ anyway. They were just normal Christians. Walking and talking and acting like the world. Are you a threat to Satan this morning? Are you a threat to Satan? Is he keenly trying to hinder your advances for the gospel by sending persecution and false teaching into your midst? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Maybe not the gospel. When was the last time you had any conversation about Jesus, Christianity, faith? Or are, are you on a deathbed like Sardis, posing no threat at all? You're just living your life, right? You're here in your corner. You got your cake. That's all you wanted. Nothing more, nothing less. You're not going to push the boundaries. Yet, everyday Christians, real Christians, faithful Christians, every day are dying and being persecuted. Because they are a threat. And for some, in many countries, they are the greatest threat. Why? Why? Because we have a hope that a lost and perishing world needs to have. An internal hope that nobody can take from us. And that's why the book of Revelation is such a beautiful book. We have... Such great metaphors and illustrations of this hope that is coming on a white horse. Ready to slay the enemy. To slay the ones that are persecuting us. Because see, not only do we have a savior, but we have a Lord and a conqueror. What a beautiful, beautiful example that we see of that in the book of Revelation. We can find other hints about the problem in Sardis if we look at the commands given by Christ to the church. You see, Christ gives five sharp imperatives to the church as a solution to their deadness. These are not instructions, but they are urgent commands. There's a difference. Listen again as I read and see if you can pick them up. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. 
Did you see them? Did you notice these five imperatives here? Wake up, or your translation might say, be watching. Strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. All of these are imperatives. The, they're commands and in which all are in the active voice, which means that it is the people of Sardis that must actively be doing these things, not someone else. Be watching, remember, obey, are all in the present tense, which means that they require continuous activity. It's not a case of wake up and go back to sleep or remember and then forget or to even obey and then don't worry. They must all continue to happen, even in the lives of spiritually thriving Christians. This must continue to happen for Josh, for Kadar, for Clyde. A continuous waking up, remembering and obeying. On the other hand, strengthen and repent are not continuous. But they are in the aorist tense. They are once and for all actions. So if you are spiritually dead this morning, here is a way for you to escape the graveyard to climb out of your deathbed. And I will close with this. The first thing is to wake up. First, we must wake up and be on alert. Be ever watchful. This would be particularly relevant to a city who suffered two defeats from failures to keep watch. They were sleeping both times. And the enemy creeped in the back door. Has that happened for you this morning? Have you been sleeping and you let sin and compromise creep in the back door? Because you were faithful and strong on this front, but on the fronts that really mattered, you've let compromise creep in. The church of Sardis and possibly some of us here this morning need to wake up and see the seriousness of our condition. We are wicked, vile, haters of God, creatures. And it is only by the saving blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved and alive today. A free gift. Once awake, we need to keep watch for those things which may lead us astray. Those things which lull us into a state of compromise as well as for Christ's coming. The second thing this morning is we need to strengthen. We are to strengthen or literally establish what life has left. Even in Sardis, there was some hope. Some things had a few remaining breaths left. The fire had gone out, but there were still some coals and ashes left. How do you start a fire from a few coals? You blow on it, right? They needed the breath of God to blow upon them and revive them before it was too late. The life of a church is not in its popularity. It's not in its programs or in its possessions or even in its personality. The life of a church 
is in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You see, when he is gone from a church, the life will go out. When he, will come, when he comes, he will fan the dying embers into a mighty flame. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is available for us? Christ has already promised that he has sent him or will send him. Remember, Christ holds the seven spirits. The next thing is we need to remember. Remember what you've heard. Remember what made you turn from your sin initially. Remember the basics of your faith and practice them day in and day out. Loving your God with all your heart. Loving your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments. The Great Commission. The Gospel itself, right? The promised Messiah coming. Being born of the Virgin. Living a sinless life. He wasn't just a guru or a teacher, but he was the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. Lived a sinless life. He walked, that co- he walked that road of Calvary. He bore the sin and shame that we all should have bore. He died. He three, three days later, he rose. Not only did he rise, but he ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. Remember. Next is obey. Obedience is always key. Obedience and obeying to what we know is true. Those things which we remember as being important. Then lastly, we need to repent. You see, the church in Sardis, they needed a change in direction if they were going to survive, and it needed to be now. That is, where, that is what repentance is, in essence, is a changing of direction, a turning around. It's, that, it's hating the things that God hates, Ask yourself this morning, are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready? Like, are, are, are you awake this morning? I know it's 10, 11, and I'm trying not to go too long. My wife asked me this morning, are you giving us the hour-long sermon or are you giving us a two-hour-long sermon? So it was up to her whether or not you got the one- or two-hour-long sermon. Are you awake this morning? And I know I'm tired and I stumble over words. And so forgive me, but the word of God speaks for itself. If I was to get up here and say nothing, the word of God speaks for itself. Are you being watchful? Remembering that which is important and obeying God's instructions for your life, for your family, for your kids? Or are you like the church in Sardis where they need to be awakened, strengthened, Remembering, obeying, and repenting. I think all of us need those things. I know I do. I'm very forgetful. I need to remember. Are you awake this morning? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as I ask the question, are we awake this morning? Lord, I cannot answer it for these people. 
And Lord, you know whether or not we are telling the truth with ourselves. So Lord, may we come to you this morning, this day, this weekend. May we be asking ourselves day by day, are we awake? Are we truly awake? Like, do, do we see the importance of each and every day? It's not just to wake up and go through the motions anymore. Are we leading our kids and our wives? Are we being the husband and wife that we should be? Are we being the parents that we should be? Most importantly, Lord, are we obeying and glorifying you in all that we do? It's easy to just go through the motions. And I often see that. That's what the church of Sardis did. After a while, they just started going through the motions. You see, they had a great reputation. They had a great past, a, few, a fruitful wool industry. And many of us today in this room are like the church of Sardis. We have a great reputation, and outwardly we look alive, and we look as healthy as ever. But inwardly, spiritually, Lord, you see the groans of our soul, the malnourishment of our spirit, So, Lord, may you send a breath of your fresh air upon us and revive us. We pray all this in your name this morning, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, If this is your first time here, I will be out in the foyer. Uh, Please shake my hand, or if you don't shake hands, fist bump. Uh, That's cool, too. Um, And again, thank you for being here this morning. May you go in the, the grace and peace of Christ.